1: for the ones who get it done.
2: The USA is in a crucial stage It's not because of foreign wars we wage It's more to do with the colors blue and red many laws and too much government? Can you tell me where the Constitution went? The Bill of Rights is just hanging by a thread. So many people try to cross the border. And politicians build a new world order. Too many minds are convinced they should be led. I've got to be free the way God made me. Damn you, when. You're Taking your right to self-defense. Defense. They say you're safe, but they don't make sense. Dangerous ones will not turn in the guns. All the unions always ask for more. All we buy is made on foreign shores. Come a day when they'll be real hell to pay. I gotta be free.
3: the damn U.N. Hello and welcome to today's broadcast of Tapping to the Truth. Hope you're having a fantastic day wherever you are and whatever you may be doing, with all the usual caveats of course. With you as always, I am your ever so humble and Mostly peaceful host, Tim Tap, coming to you from historic Rome County, Tennessee, and it happens to be our Sunday broadcast. It is March the twelfth. Wow, we are already that close to St. Patrick's day, and believe it or not, way back in the day, if you want to go digging into the archives uh first couple of years, I had a strange St. Patrick's Day promo, uh, as it it did make it on air, and if you want to go check that out, uh, feel free. I promise I will not be doing anything like that again, but at any rate, glad to have you here uh, along for the ride today as we uh, take a look back at what's happened this past week and try to make sense of a lot of it together. And obviously, it's not so much about trying to make sense out of it, because we're talking about the political left and and all of their efforts. We know what they're up to and trying to, to figure out how they've become so successful. It's important, but we really are just trying to hang together uh, as we face these issues and obstacles. I'm here to let you know you're not alone. And speaking of not being alone, I want to talk to you a little bit uh, about our sponsor for today. And sadly, this may be the last time I get to say 4patriots.com is a sponsor of the show. We did a one month trial uh, together. And as of the last I heard from them, which was this past Friday, we hadn't converted any cells. None. Now, lots of listens out there, and this audience is all about being prepared. So what I'm afraid may have happened here is that a lot of you guys either felt like you've already become prepared enough or you are already in a point with, thanks to the Biden economy, maybe you just you don't feel comfortable spending the kind of money that's necessary to be prepared right now in this moment. So I'm hoping that you're already prepared well enough, although I don't know that any of us can be. But just for the record, let me reiterate the fact that uh, no hard feelings uh, on my part if we do end up having to end this relationship, because I don't want to take the money if I'm not bringing any value anyway. I'm just really surprised that we haven't had anything. Because while I've Put a link in the show descriptions that takes you to a specific page about the Patriot Power Generator. I've mentioned multiple times that all you have to do is go to 4patriots.com and use promo code TAP T-A-P-P, T-A-P-P uh, to get 10% off your first purchase over there for anything in the store. Anything at all. And I know there's plenty of things over there with that we all could use. I know I myself been over there thinking... I wish I could use my promo code. I've got to use somebody else's. I'm not allowed to use mine. Uh but ton of great stuff that I've just I know I can't afford to get. But we need to to keep in mind that being prepared is no joke. We all need to be there. And as we transition into spring, we're literally going into storm season. So lots of natural disaster type situations. Throw on top of that the man caused stuff that's constantly going on. And what are you going to do when your power's out? Now, Craig, who's the guy we've been telling you about for the entirety of this month, we've had talking about this. He thought he was doing the right thing during Hurricane Ida. He went out, he bought a gas generator beforehand, fired it up. During the night, he lost his wife and his two children thanks to carbon monoxide poisoning. It it seeped out of the generator and into his home. And the sad part of that is that Craig isn't alone. Literally every year, thousands of Americans are suffering from some degree from carbon monoxide poisoning as a result of various uh, entrances into the home. You know, there are natural pockets of carbon monoxide. It affects a lot of people, but trying to use backup generators increases the odds, especially if you're not that familiar with the operation of Now, Craig's strategy Tragedy... Tragedy... Annunciation being important. Doesn't have to happen at all. Thanks to a brand new generation of portable, safe, silent, and 100% fume-free generators that are now available to all Americans, even those who think they might not be able to afford it. The Patriot Power Generator is a solar generator that doesn't use gas. So, it doesn't have any fumes. And instead of being loud... As quiet as a laptop, and it's so lightweight you literally can pick it up and take it with you wherever you need to go. You can even use it inside. Again, remember the part where there's no fumes. Powerful enough to keep your phones charged up, keep your emergency radios going, keep your medical devices that you may need uh, to operate keeps them running too, even your refrigerator. Right now. You can go to 4Patriots.com and use code TAPP, T-A-P-P, to get 10% off your first purchase on anything in the store, including the Patriot Power Generator. So just go to the number 4Patriots, just put them together, 4Patriots.com. Use code TAPP, T-A-P-P, and get 10% off. That's 4Patriots.com. Use code TAP T-A-P-P, to get yours today and like i said go visit see if there's anything at all uh, i would love to last minute uh, get some get some sales conversions and have them decide that uh, they'll try at least a little bit longer but hey I'm not asking you to go buy anything that you do not want or do not need or even worse than that legitimately cannot afford because again i understand buying economy blah 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 and speaking of the Biden economy, let's address our first story of the day. You see, the showdown over the future of the federal budget is already taking shape as barely there Beijing Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. released his fiscal year 2024 spending proposal and, of course, the House Republicans preparing to leverage their new majority block over in the uh, House of Representatives They're moving to block the plan, and rightfully so, I should add. The White House suggested an increase in the federal budget uh, from $5.8 trillion to $6.9 trillion over the next fiscal year, while reducing cumulative deficits by $3 trillion over the next decade through a number of tax hikes. On businesses and wealthy individuals, we know how well that works. We've seen how well that, uh, how well that actually, uh, can be implemented and executed. And oh yeah, how well it just works. Period. It doesn't. It's usually when you reduce taxes and regulations that you turn the businesses loose to become more productive, more profitable, therefore putting more money in the economy, more money in the hands of your average everyday American who then can go out and, assuming that their tax burden has been alleviated to a degree, can go spend more money again, keeping the economy strong, thereby actually increasing the amount of dollars taken in through tax collection at the lower rates than the amounts that they get at the higher rates when they're squeezing the economy down. Now, we already mentioned uh, last Friday when uh, Matt Fitzgibbons was on the air with us about how there's this artificial unemployment bubble that's about to just be burst. And by that, I'm saying the numbers. We saw the numbers actually tick up this past month going from January into February, not only did it tick up, but it ticked up more than they thought. And the reason for that tick up in unemployment, despite the so-called improved numbers of jobs added, is the fact that that number has been artificially low since before the end of the Trump administration. And it was artificially low because of the artificial shutdown due to COVID-19. You see, back under the Obama uh, regime... They changed how they counted unemployment and took a large swath of folks that had previously been counted by virtue of being employment-aged, healthy, should be working, but simply were not looking for employment for whatever reason or another, and they took out thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people that should have been included in those statistics on a state-to-state basis. So you're talking about a much larger number than you might even imagine until you actually sit there and start, you know, crunching the numbers. As more and more people suffer through the inflation and can no longer coast by on money they managed to save that was freely given away both by Trump and Biden, Biden only making it worse, and maxing out their credit cards now, Uh, no longer able to continue to make purchases that they no longer have to come up with cash for, you're going to start seeing some of these folks that have been out of the workforce coming back in. So workforce participation is going to start shooting up. And these created jobs are not only going to be filled and filled quickly, but they're not going to be able to keep up because inflation and the increased rates from the Fed are going to start squeezing down What companies can afford to reduce their prices for and it's just going to price things out of the way and then all those dollars chasing a limited number of goods are going to stop chasing those goods because they're going to be outside of the reach of all the people that can't afford them anymore. It's simple, basic economics, but they find hundreds and thousands of different ways to whine, bemoan, and try to confuse and confound the average American. And thankfully, they've managed to dumb down a huge portion of the average American. That here we are. And when I say dumb down, I mean simply a reference that you no longer understand things that 30 years ago, someone your same age would have had a very strong fundamental understanding of maybe not you know all the ins and outs maybe not have a phd level understanding of something but you'd have the fundamentals you knew how to balance your checkbook for crying out loud a skill that's not taught anymore well because we're just swiping a card why do we need to do because you still need to know how much money's in your account period You should be able to keep track. And if you're going to become an entrepreneur, if you're going to run your own business, even if that business is just being an influencer on TikTok, you need to understand where the money's going to, how much you're spending to make things happen, and what should you be paying your employees uh, because a lot of these channels build up to the point that they can, in fact, do that. And a lot of them have to do it once they start creating content at a certain level. It would be good. For you to know, rather than just have to hire somebody to do it for you. You need to know the the, understand the basics, the building blocks. And if you keep tinkering with how things are counted to manipulate, to artificially change and lower a number that makes you look bad, or artificially pump up numbers that make you look good, then somewhere along the line, you're going to be touting the fact that, oh, well, we don't really have inflation or a recession or a depression because one aspect of how we've always defined it currently isn't true. It's not going to change the pain that the American people are feeling at the gas pump. It's not going to change the pain that the American people are feeling at the grocery store, especially if they were hoping to make omelets on a Sunday morning. No, it is in fact going to continue to hurt people that are below a certain economic standard. If you are fortunate enough to still be in the middle class, you're feeling the pain. If you're not quite into the middle class, you're feeling the pain a lot. Now, if you are rich, then maybe it's not painful yet. But if you pay attention to your budget, you're still noticing that it's costing you way more than it should. The problem is our political class, they don't typically feel that kind of pain. They don't even do their own work anymore. How many times have we heard about the Tucker Carlson released footage of uh, QAnon Shaman. Uh, we've heard now from several members of the January 6th House Committee that they never actually looked at any of the footage. What? Yeah, well, we did have our aides do that. Uh, what? No, come on, seriously. You're kidding, right? Nope. <laughs> That's why these people very rarely have any answers. And if you get them off script, if you get them away from their talking points, they're stumbling, bumbling, and fumbling. To borrow former, now no longer with us, sports announcers. Oh, no, actually, no, I'm thinking of the wrong sports announcer. Uh, <laughs> the guy who said stumbling, fumbling, dumbling. Uh, that guy's still around. My apologies. <laughs> anyway. Here we are looking at trying to reduce cumulative deficits. Um, That's still going to be based on plans that are going to require no additional spending or no changes to the budget or budgetary process at all between now and the end of this next decade. And again, you're hurting the economy by raising taxes on businesses and individuals, whether they fall into your definition of wealthy or not, because we also know that trickles down. How they define wealthy right now for the purposes of, we're going to go after trillionaires, and bajillionaires, and gajillionaires. And then when they write tax policy, they're going after people that might get $250 on a payment thanks to their side hustle. Does that sound wealthy to you? That sounds like people that are struggling to make it to me, but you know, again, it doesn't really affect them. They want households with more than 100 million dollars in wealth would be subject to a 25% minimum tax. Okay? Uh, that way even if they find some way to get past what the current tax system says, and, and they find the, the deductions and the negative appreciations of values. And when they word it this way, that also means that they are counting on your value of your stock holdings. And again, we've talked about that this is unrealized wealth. Because right now, all they're really holding is a piece of paper, if they even have that. A lot of this is done digitally now. I know my portfolio is handled through uh, a trading platform that's online. A lot of Americans do the same thing by virtue that. We have a digital statement that we could print out and it would be a piece of paper, but we don't have that cash liquid and ready to go. And... If we did collect the cash there, that would require us to sell it and lose what value, what merit it holds to us. And would also, in turn, possibly cause the crash of companies that don't deserve it because of the way the markets work. So, yeah, let's go ahead and include a 25% minimum tax because we think your household has value over $100 million even though your actual cash value may be much, much less. While the top marginal tax rate would also be increased to 39.6% from its current 37% rate, businesses would see an increase in corporate tax to 28%, which would split the difference between the current 21% rate and the previous 35% rate that was in effect before the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, of 2017. Now, the proposal, which also suggested new health care and education subsidies, largely adheres to the Democratic emphasis on redistributive fiscal policy. Quoting here from Janet Yellen in a statement that uh, was released This budget builds on our economic progress by making smart fiscal. Res- I'm sorry, fiscally responsible investments, which would be more than fully paid for by requiring corporations and the wealthy to pay their fair share. This budget's growth-enhancing investments will continue the economic progress of the last two years and further boost the economy's productive capability. Well, excuse me, Miss Yellen, and... Joe Biden, and any and all Democrats, office holders, and anybody dumb enough to support this idea. We don't need any more of the previous economic progress since Joe Biden took over because it hasn't been progress. I mean, maybe you guys are doing all right, but as far as the rest of us are concerned, uh, that's a big no-go. Sorry, you're killing us out here. You're not boosting the economy. You're cooking the books. Also, that you can look like a hero. And so you can continue to say, well, Orange Man was bad, so we don't want that. And it's funny how the economy was booming under that 21% tax rate, which was still a bit too punitive. If you really want to take full advantage of our capability at beating the markets around the world, becoming that leader of business everywhere, where we should be, I should add, where our biggest competitors should also be our closest allies in the international markets, and it should be a friendly competition and the kind in which we all benefit. But if you really want to get there, we can't continue to be punitive against entrepreneurs and corporations uh, which are nowhere near the same thing, very large spectrum there. We should stop being punitive to against small business and we should stop being punitive against large business unless these businesses are doing something wrong. And uh spoiler alert for all you lefties out there, um making a profit is not in and of itself something wrong. And actual free market economies has done more to lift more people out of poverty around the world than any other system, any other philosophy, any other action, period. So every time you're legitimately talking against what you keep referring to as capitalism, which I would still infer we need to be talking about free market economies as opposed to some of the perversions of the capitalist system. Crony capitalism comes to mind for some strange reason. You're actually talking about holding people down instead of lifting them up. You you literally say the opposite, but that's still what you are arguing for. Boost this economy's productive capability. You're not going to do it by penalizing businesses for doing business. Now, Republican officials who've not yet countered the budget with a proposal of their own, they're contesting various elements of the plan. And again, I'll say rightfully so. Uh, Kevin McCarthy was saying, uh, President Biden just delivered his budget to Congress, and it is completely unserious. He proposes trillions in new taxes that you and your family will pay directly or through higher costs. Washington has a spending problem, not a revenue problem. You know what? With all the misgivings that I've had about Kevin McCarthy, I've got to say, when it comes to talking, uh, policy and budget, he's been spot on so far. Not a lot of speakers have had the courage to call out DC's real issue. Uh, A lot of commentators, uh, Those tier one commentators that you all know and love. And then those tier two commentators like, uh, well, like folks you see visiting my show on a regular basis. Even those tier three and four commentators, you know, like me. I think I'm probably somewhere down around tier four. uh, Which still puts me better than a lot of the pops online. But still, (laughs) I don't see myself as being one of those top tier guys. I hope you guys think more highly of me than I do. I, I know I criticize myself pretty firmly, but anyway, I digress. Not the topic. Really digging Kevin McCarthy on this issue. You have heard us say for a long time. You've heard Rush Limbaugh preach it for years before he tragically left us far too soon. And unfortunately, if he lived to be a million, it would still be way too soon. You've heard everybody since also say that same thing. You've heard Sean Hannity say it. You've heard uh, Ben Shapiro. You've heard uh, Glenn Beck. You have heard uh, all of these folks. I could sit here and go down a full list, but for crying out loud, I could take up the entirety of the show, giving you the list of all the people who have made the point that DC's problem isn't the revenue. And it's been that way. Since Reagan was in office. Well, it's been that way much, much longer than that. But it's been obvious since then. All you have to do as an average American is look at how much money's coming in and then take a cursory glance at just how much is being wasted. The very notion of earned income credits represents the fact that, okay, well, we're really about just redistributing some stuff and not actually paying for the programs that we're doing. And then we're going to turn around and say, well, we didn't have enough to to operate the program the way we would like to, so we're going to have to raise your taxes to get more. And every time there's a reduction in taxes, there's an increase in revenues, but oh, we can't talk about that. And then we'll have some more on uh, go on TV, go on the radio, write a piece for the New York Times and explain how ludicrous that very notion is. How can you reduce the amount of taxes and have more money to spend? That's just crazy. You're causing governmental issues. And again, even when they do that, they're acknowledging that their mindset is that it's their money and we should be glad that they let us keep any of our earnings. We earn it. It is our money. They don't believe that. And they certainly don't act like it. But they completely ignore the fact that statistically, when you look at it, wow, why is there more revenue after having reduced taxes? Now, you got to wait a couple of quarters normally to really see that uptick because it's a lagging indicator. And they will they will try and manipulate and use those first—well, this first quarter, right, immediately after they had uh, uh, reduced this tax, we, we just saw a downtick in our revenues because it hadn't had time to hit and positively affect the economy yet. And they know that, and they still lie to us anyway because they think we're just that dumb. And the sad part is there's plenty of people that do buy into it that want to believe them and want to ignore us. Now, the release of the budget proposal just so happens to coincide with negotiations between Biden and McCarthy over the debt ceiling, a measure established by Congress that is entirely meaningless at this point anyway, but they still like to play this little shell game. But according to the measure, it disallows the federal government from spending beyond the predetermined statutory limit, which right now is $31.4 trillion. Now, Janet Yellen, of course, was warning lawmakers that the Treasury Department was forced to implement extraordinary measures earlier this year to fund the government until early June, after which the government will default, 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 default. And whose default is that, Janet? Janet? the never-ending desire to constantly spend taxpayer dollars regardless of any fiduciary responsibility that Congress actually has for American taxpayer dollars? Could that be a a small factor at the very least? I don't know. You tell me. You're the economic expert, Janet. I'm just a guy who sits here and says, well, you know, when I'm adding uh, the Uh, paycheck I just got to the amount of money that I had left over from my previous paycheck, and then I turn around and look at the fact that my uh, mortgage rate hasn't changed, so my payment there is still sitting at that same dollar, but now my trips to the grocery store are costing twice, three, four times what it did just two and a half short years ago, Uh, and the fact that my trip itself The gas I have to put in the car uh, is costing close to double, thanks to it actually having come down some recently. It's only about double what it was about two and a half years ago. Gee, wonder why I might be feeling some economic pain, Janet. Wonder why I might be saying, hey, guys, get your stuff together, because even if you hated the Early morning bathroom tweets. Because they were so mean. Even if you believed that Donald John Trump was a climate arsonist. If you believed... That he was the orange man who was bad. That he was, in fact, not just figuratively me making fun of the left, but you honestly believe that he was a kicker of puppies, an eater of babies, that he was somehow demonic. Of course, actually, if you're a leftist, I would think the eater of babies thing would make you kind of like him a little bit, but I digress. Not a good track record of liking babies over there on the left. We have the right to murder our unborn, pre-born baby humans. Bunch of morons. The House Freedom Caucus, which withheld votes for McCarthy at the beginning of the present Congress until he committed to negotiating with Biden on efforts to reduce the national debt, announced that members would likewise refuse to support raising the debt ceiling unless various White House policies were rescinded. Among The uh, initiatives that the Republican lawmakers want is to repeal. uh, I'm sorry. The initiatives the Republican lawmakers want to repeal are the $400 billion student debt cancellation executive order, which I don't think is going to hold up in court anyway. But hey, uh, to have them go ahead and rescind it uh, saves time, energy, and effort, and taxpayer dollars by no longer having to fight it in court. The $80 billion allocated to the IRS enacted under the Inflation Reduction Act, misnomer uh, extraordinaire, and all of the unspent stimulus funds earmarked during the lockdown-induced recession. Now, votes in favor of raising the debt limit are also contingent upon capping discretionary spending at fiscal year 2022 levels for the next decade with a 1% annual growth allowance. Business leaders and government officials have cautioned that the default would likely induce a worldwide financial crisis. No. Increases in the national debt, however, are unsustainable. The federal government's obligations surpassed $31.5 trillion, equivalent to roughly 120% of the nation's gross domestic product. Maintenance costs are meanwhile increasing due to the present rise of interest rates. That's maintenance that is just simply paying the interest on our national debt. That's what they mean. want to make it? crystal clear. When they say maintenance costs, they're not talking about uh, the upkeep of the Capitol building. They're talking about the national debt is in fact a debt, meaning we borrowed money from somewhere to make it happen. Maintenancing those loans, which at this point is almost all they do. They're barely paying any principal at all, so the debt's not coming down any at all. Just paying the interest on that debt now is reaching not just unsustainable levels, but levels that would sink an average person in a heartbeat, would destroy a regular business inside of six months. The economics still work the same for the government as it does for the rest of us. They just get a little more of a cushion because they have tricks at their disposal that most of us don't including uh, sweet-talking the Fed into just printing more cash, furthering inflation, further devaluing our currency, making our money go even less, and putting us in a position where we have to have wheelbarrows of cash to go buy a loaf of bread. But hey, at least for now, we still have bread at the grocery stores that's not a guarantee if we keep going down this path. An analysis from The Economist at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School recently concluded that a 30% decrease in spending or a 40% increase in taxation would be necessary to handle current deficit spendings and future obligations. Republicans and Democrat administrations have both overseen surges in debt over the past several decades. That goes without saying. Donald Trump did not address the deficit spending. We talked about that. It's not fair that we are the ones that have to keep paying the price. All right, the thing about the Sunday broadcast is it's no longer rebroadcast on terrestrial radio. So I can run this bad boy as long as I want to. So I'm not going to be adhered to the same time constraints, meaning that I ran a little long here, but by virtue of running a little long, I'm still free to run a little long in the next segment. I don't have to cut it short. So I hope you guys don't mind. Uh, Don't go anywhere. I am going to take that break right now. I'll be right back after this.
0: Hi, I'm Christina Bob, author of Stealing Your Vote, and attorney for the Donald J. Trump for President 2024 campaign. And you're listening to Tim Tapp and in Tap into the Truth.
4: When one refers to the lifeblood of America, I'm sure they would agree it includes the U.S. trucking industry. Hello, I'm Ron Edwards. On today's page from the Edwards Notebook, when it comes to what you and I wear, eat, or use, it is most likely transported by one of the many legions of dedicated truck drivers crisscrossing our beloved republic. Starting in 1910, the development of a number of technologies gave rise to the modern trucking industry, By 1914, there were almost 100,000 trucks on American roads. In 1954, President Dwight Eisenhower laid the groundwork for the construction of the interstate highway system, which includes ribbons of roadway that enable America's dedicated army of truckers to deliver everything we the people utilize for our daily lives. The truckers, in my opinion, have often been overlooked and even maligned by irate highway motorists who berate the truckers for supposedly causing traffic slowdowns. Today, over 27 million trucks traverse our highways, hauling over 70% of the total volume of freight. Because of the 24-7 trucking industry, our economy will recover more quickly and our way of life be more secure. So when you pass a trucker on the highway, give him a thumbs up and tell him, Ron Edwards said hello. I'm Ron Edwards. Check out theronedwards.com.
1: Beanstalks stocks designed specifically for people who haven't started investing yet or don't know how to do it or haven't been trained how to do it or are worried about investing in the stock market that they've never done before. It's a robo-advisor system that really simplifies the investing process. The challenge we all have is that as you work and you grow in your career, you have to put something aside for yourself when you retire, around 65 years old. And the idea of Beanstalks is to simplify that whole process. In other words, Put aside 10% of your salary each week, maybe just $100, and let it go to work in the stock market for you. And what Beanstock does is basically automate that process for you. Easy to set up. You can transfer directly to your bank account and puts it into exchange-traded funds, which are baskets of many stocks, which gives you diversification. That's the whole key, the idea that you can have this done for you weekly or bi-monthly. But the most important thing is to start now and make it so that you are putting something aside for your own retirement, Beanstalks just makes it really simple to do.
5: Introducing Einstock Drink, Conquer, Repeat goal. Einstock Beer is a globally distributed, award-winning Icelandic craft beer. Einstock is created from the Icelandic water that flows from glaciers through lava fields and delivers some of the purest water on earth. Knowing that beer is 95% water, we source the first and most vital ingredient from the local springs of a mountain that stands guard over the town of Akureyri just 60 miles south of the Arctic Circle. Einstock beer is crafted with locally sourced ingredients, and the brewery runs from 100% renewable energy sources, geothermal, and hydropower. Einstock has become the number one craft beer and also the number one alcohol export from Iceland. Here in the United States, you can find Einstock beer on the shelves at retail chains like ABC Fine Wine and Spirits, Bemmo, Cost Plus World Market, H-E-B in Texas, Kroger, Publix, Target, Total Wine, Trader Joe's, and Whole Foods, just to name a few. So won't you raise a glass and drink, conquer, repeat. Skull.
4: Remember, Constitutional Grounds, the coffee you want in your cup.
2: Hey y'all, this is Derrick Johnson. You can find me at Derek and you're listening to Tim Tap and tapping to the truth. She's hair pulled back in a camo cap with a catfish on the line. She's an evening gown, night on the town, candlelight and wine. She's shy, she's bold, she's like a nice cold fireball
6: whiskey shot She's a big high five on the 50-yard line She's a real cool kind of hot With
2: her long hair's blowing out a roll down window My old truck shines like a brand new limo I'm the guy with the big old smile and all the selfie shots She's like an August day when you're bailing hay And that lemonade hits the spot She's fun and free and let's
3: yeah real cool kind of hot all righty ladies and gentlemen thank you so very much for staying with me through that very brief break uh, glad to introduce a, a new ad to the lineup uh, along with uh given a little promotion for Matt Fitzgibbons over at patriotmusic.com. I'm going to be playing that one. Glad he finally sent that over and was so happy to have him back on the air with us. It had been way too long. It was a great conversation. And uh, for those of you that would like to participate in an after show conversation uh, sometimes some of the guests will hang out and be part of it too. And Matt was good enough to do that. Uh, go over to mewee.com sign up for free. It's just another social media platform. And I know you may feel like you're already uh, on too many of them, even if you're only on one, but you go over to the, the MeWe platform, you'll find the last frequency group. And in that group, you can hang out. It, it works as kind of a chat group, uh, during the show, and uh, you can participate over at Ron's uh, show as well, doing the same thing when he's on air. But one of the things that Doug has started doing after the live show is he'll connect the folks uh, via Skype. We kind of pull together, and uh, last week, as uh, better known as AZ, aka Arizona Anti Hero. Uh, <laughs> He hung out with us for a while, and he got to ask questions, both me and uh, Matt. And, you know, it was a pretty good conversation. You got to hear some things that you would not be able to hear on air. So as we look to grow that, uh, just one more reason to come be part of the show uh, and participate in that fashion. Uh, At least you're all welcome. You're invited to come hang out and do that. Won't always have guests do that. But, you know, when we have somebody that likes that level of interaction, Uh, We'll see if we can't make it happen. How's that sound? Okay. Let's continue today. We've got a lot of stuff kind of going on in the realm of law today. And I do like getting kind of back to the roots because in the earliest days of the show, I went more focused on policy than on culture war, and it's kind of the absolute opposite now. And it wasn't because uh, the culture war arguments are sexier, more exciting. Uh, but it really is the fact to do with a lot of folks who do understand that policy is important. they kind of tune out when you're talking policy, especially if you get too far into the weeds. But I still can can work policy in in an important way. Uh, using the culture war as a place to interject that information. And that's why a lot of hosts have ended up doing exactly the same thing. At the end of the day, though, as Andrew Breitbart has reminded us all, uh, politics is a downstream of culture. Culture will dictate where the political fights are going. And so it's also important to be there. Here's something that kind of falls very, very negatively, I think, right in the middle of both. We had a Virginia judge who ruled last month that frozen embryos can be considered property. And this decision was based in part on a 19th century slavery law, at least according to a new report on this uh, this event. The ruling was part of a dispute between a divorced couple who both hoped to gain control over two dozen embryos which were created by uh Honeyline Henderman and Jason Henderman. Honey Honeyline I that is a strange name. I'm hoping that that's a misprint here. I mean Honeyline I would get Honeyasline. I don't know. Anyway, uh, the Henderman couple uh, no longer together, I would imagine uh, during their marriage they They got together and they froze two dozen embryos. This, again, according to reporting from the Associated Press. Uh, Upon independent research, this court was unable, I'm quoting, by the way, now, uh, the Fairfax County Circuit Court Judge Richard uh, Gardner, Gardner? I think it's Gardner. Anyway. I hate it when I start getting these names all garbled up. Anyway, upon independent research, this court was unable to find any Virginia law prohibiting the purchase or sale of human embryo, nor has either party cited a federal law prohibiting the activity. Now, this was written in the ruling from the judge uh, related to the battle over the embryos. Continuing, As there is no prohibition on the sale of human embryos, they may be valued and sold, and thus may be considered goods or chattels, within the meaning of Code Annotated 8.01-93. And that is a slavery law. Just for the record. There's a reason why we don't have specific laws in regards to the value, the service provided, the selling and or other various forms of trade with embryos. At one point in our history, No one perceived the need to define that as being anything different than that's a potential human life and should be treated as such. Most reasonable, rational people still hold that opinion. However, we live in an age where literally we have to lay out all the, the rules, set up all the guidelines, keep all the guardrails up on the sides... these uncontrollable people will twist and maim and murk up the waters as much as they can every single comma and semicolon within a law to try to find all the wiggle room they can in an effort to just, you know, win. Doesn't matter whether their clients win. It doesn't matter if the embryos And I'm presuming they were fighting over them uh, because one of them, at least, wanted the opportunity to still have those children. And again, I think I remember something about this case a while back, but I, I think one of the members simply didn't want to be on the hook for child support when the children never came into being while they were together of thing, if I'm remembering correctly, if it's not that there was another case, and that too will be affected by this one anyway, since the couple are no longer together uh miss honey line and again they they've got the h in there too, so honey hasth line it line I, just weird pronunciation it reads as honey h line okay and I'm not hooked on phonics well enough to solve that mystery, I suppose. I apologize. Me, My East Tennessee tongue doesn't want to, to play that phonetic game anyway. So I'll just call her Honey for short. Or, you know what, what do you say we actually do a more respectful thing and refer to them by their, I don't know, is that even respectful? Because is Miss Heidelman still Miss Heidelman? At this point, she wouldn't be, right? They're divorced now. That would be disrespectful to I don't want to disrespect the folks. So I'll just say she. Now, I am still presuming that she identifies as he, her, she, whatever pronouns. But anyway, I'll just call her she. Now, she had hoped to move forward with using the embryos, but Jason had sought to block her, saying that, Implanting the embryos would force Mr. Heidelman to procreate against his wishes and therefore violate his constitutional right to procreational autonomy. Okay, I'm not sure there's something specific in the Constitution about procreational autonomy, but I think I get the gist of what he's saying, and you should have a right. Uh, To control whether or not you have children running around if things have went sour. Even though the intent at the time was to most likely have those children. I'm presuming that was the intent at the time it happened. Right, Mr. Heidelman? I still think it has more to do with child support than anything. But anyway, according to a... 2015 contract that the couple had drawn up, they, quote, own any stored embryos jointly. While the judge has not made a decision on Jason's procreational autonomy claim, he did rule that the embryos could be viewed as property. His ruling, in part, relied on a Virginia law from the 1800s that regulated goods, and chattel, which included slaves at the time the law was written. Uh, saying, quote, and this is a quote from Solomon Ashby, uh, president of the Old Dominion Bar Association, I would like to think that uh, the bench and the bar would be seeking more modern precedent. Except the judge made it clear there wasn't any more modern precedent. That was the precedent that he had available to draw upon. So, yeah, look for it all you like. I, Based on the fact that he said that he had researched it, I would hope the judge actually did, and he wasn't making that up. Pretty sure the judge isn't a closet clan member here, thinking, I'm going to use any excuse I have to, to go back and delve into slavery laws. But it being Virginia, I guess somebody could always insinuate that. After all, the... Previous governor of the state is notoriously uh, known to be either have been in blackface or having worn a hood for a uh, for a dress-up party. In fact, I often refer to him as Governor Blackface. But to be fair, he could not confirm that he was the one in blackface because he might have been the one wearing the clan hood. So, yeah, again. Anyway, a human embryo is typically frozen very soon after fertilization before the pre-born child has been able to develop much. So with that being the case, you got to find some precedent, right? In recent months, some conservatives have considered or voiced support for Increasing protections for embryos and prohibiting the disposal of embryos as a pro life organizations have often raised concerns about what happened to the embryos that do not end up being implanted. The judge's ruling to treat embryos as property could draw the attention of pro lifers who have often compared slavery and abortion over their callous treatment of human life, and this does nothing. To, to sharpen the line between the two. In fact, it probably just blurs it further. I, I do wish there was something a little more clean cut to, to base this on, and I hate the fact that it requires a law that was passed that included slaves... As being property, as being part of the determining factor here, because you would think, and I'm emphasizing uh, some words that probably don't make a whole lot of sense in this comparison because I don't think a lot of thought went into this, but you would think that once slavery was ended in this country, that all the laws, all the laws, even the ones that are good laws but were applied towards maintaining slavery. It was not its intent, but we know how laws get utilized even after they're passed. Is that like, what well, we only meant for this to happen? Now, I do tend to think that pretty much after the 1800s, or at least after some point early in the 1900s, the notion of unintended consequences kind of disappeared because they realized uh, what the unintended consequences of previous laws had been, and they're like, you know what? We can start crafting them that way, and then just claim, "Oh, we had no idea that would be." <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, not that that could happen. <laughs> I, I really think that to be uh, the case. But a case like this really does, once again, bring back the real question that we should be asking: whether we're talking about abortion or we're talking about fertilized embryos, or whatever else you may be talking about, including slavery, which is still a thing everywhere else around the world. Well, not everywhere else, but in a lot of places. Uh, Everybody that's in this country that's whining about slavery from 100 years ago, they seem to be missing the point that you're not slaves now, and you haven't been for over 100 years. But there are places where people are slaves right this instant in time. That, to me, seems like the slavery you should be fighting. But the question that we're not asking that we should be, uh, uh, to be fair, a lot of us are asking. But we're not in this particular case. The court's not asking it. The judge that made the ruling isn't asking it. The couple that are now no longer a couple but are fighting over these fertilized embryos, they're not asking and that is, what is the value of human life? What is the value of a human being? Pre-born or postborn? If all of us took the time to question the value of human life, period, before we made any decision at all, whatsoever, there'd be a lot less violent crime. There'd be a lot more people walking around. The world would probably be a better place. Now, I say probably as a qualifier because a lot of the people that would be walking around that aren't would undoubtedly be bad people. And some of them would do very bad things. But at the same time, a lot of the people that are not walking around because their life was taken from them before their birth, well, a lot of those people would have been really, really good people. And may have done, even if there weren't really, really good people, may have still done really, really, really great things and made life better. The tragedy is we will never know how life advanced because that life wasn't valued enough. If you're not in a position to take care of a child, then put the child up for adoption someone who is in a position to do it can do it, and you can still value life. If you're somebody who thinks that you should have autonomy over your body, practice that autonomy before you become pregnant. There are plenty of ways for you to do that. Once you have become pregnant, you're no longer making decisions for your life alone. That is where we have to make that basic fundamental distinction. That is life, period. It's not Just a bundle of cells. It's not just random tissue growing. It is a life. Even at those earliest stages. Because those definitions that you want to use to try to placate yourself, to try to rationalize what would possibly make it okay to take that pre-born baby's life, those definitions still hold true at any point in life. To this very day, 50 years after my birth, I am still just a group of tissues, a collection of cells. But, and just like that collection of cells, that group of tissues that are growing inside a womb somewhere, I'm more than that. And so are they. A living, breathing human being has the spark of the divine. Now, how much they choose to embrace that spark, how much of that spark they allow to be shown out to the world, that's up to them. And it's demonstrated by choices they make and things that they do. Every new life is potential in both directions, good or bad. The value of that life is unchanged because the value of that life, it has the spark of the divine. For every time I've heard the argument made uh, against the death penalty, I've heard folks on the left say, well, how can you be for the death penalty but against abortion? Again, it goes back to what is the value of that life? I'm for the death penalty if the crime is heinous enough, if you have committed sins so egregious against other people that in order to protect society, it may be necessary. I still think I have to go on a case-by-case basis. I just can't say in generally. well, if you did this, you got to go. I think if there are certain things that you did do and you actually did it and there's no redeeming you, then that is a, a fair punishment. But the fundamental difference there is they got to live. They got to make their choices. They did the bad things, and they have become that person who's become a threat. And just for the same reason that I believe in due process, I believe in fair opportunity. There is no equal outcomes that can be guaranteed, but the protections that our Constitution, that our country was founded to provide. Those protections are based on opportunity. It's up to you to make the right choices to embrace it. That's the question we need to be asking. What is the value of human life? What do you say we reset the hour? You guys don't go anywhere. I'll be back after a very, very short intermission. Uh, Yeah, that's what I'm going to call that right there. Very, very short. I'll be right back, guys. Don't go anywhere. Richard Battle, author and speaker and media commentator, and you're listening to Tim Tapp on Tapping the Truth.
2: That union saved the working class. He was raised a red state son to love the flag and own a gun. Warned about the greed within the mass. They met beneath the moonlit sky, a college party drunk and high. And when they had degrees, they said their vows. He couldn't say when. Couldn't say how Couldn't say why She was different in his eyes They built careers and had a kid Tried to live like their parents did But both their parties taxed them close to death They learned to hate the public schools So much more from so much less Now they can say when Brad Fitzgibbons from PatriotMusic.com, and you're listening to Tim Tap and Tap into the Truth. In. The rains coming, the rains coming. All your days and all your nights, it brings a storm on you. Yeah, yeah. The rains coming, the rains coming. All your days and all your nights, it brings a storm on you. Because the rain.
3: All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are, well, we are well into our number two today. And again, I want to thank Matt Fitzgibbons for coming on and hanging out with us and uh, love everything he does. One of the things that we talked about, I can't remember now if it was on air or after uh, the show, But we were talking about The Rain is Coming, uh, one of my favorite songs that he's done uh, over the years. And we were talking about the obvious meaning. And then he happened to say, well, you know, it's not necessarily that obvious to everybody. Because it happened about the same time as one of the hurricanes. And uh, some people really thought it was just kind of a freaking weather report. I'm like, oh, my goodness. But I'm not that surprised. So it's with that in mind that I actually think this makes for a pretty good segue into a discussion about today's sponsor. Uh, This may be the last time they're sponsoring the show. I I hope that we can continue our relationship. But the thing about when rains and storms come, literally, and sometimes figuratively as well, bad things happen. And when these bad things happen, it's up to you as a well prepared guardian of your family to be, in fact, that prepared and ready to go. Uh, one of the places you can go to help you be better prepared for whatever life has to throw your way, whether it's from natural disasters or some man-caused event, uh, you can piggy on over to FourPatriots.com. They literally have just about anything you would need to be prepared, everything from emergency food supplies to heirloom seeds to, well, backup power generators, which is a thing that we'll be talking about here in just a second. Uh, all kinds of great stuff, uh, water filters, everything. So you can go visit 4, the number 4, Patriots, all one word, 4 Patriots. Dot com. You can use code TAP, that's T-A-P-P, to get 10% off of your first purchase on anything in the store. And I highly recommend you go visit. Or if you're listening to the podcast, you can click on the show description underneath. And it will take you specifically to a page that's designed to track the fact that you came from this audience. So if you make a purchase then, even if you don't purchase the generator, which is the focus of that page uh they'll still know that it came from here and still go ahead and use code tap at checkout Uh, it would be really good but uh, we're talking about craig and what happened to him see he thought he was doing the right thing during hurricane ida he went out he bought a gas generator he fired it up but during the night deadly carbon monoxide gas seeped out of his generator and into his home he lost his wife and his two children Because of carbon monoxide poisoning that night. And Craig's tragedy, it didn't have to happen. It doesn't have to happen to anybody. Thanks to a new generation of portable, safe, and silent, 100% fume-free backup power generators. These generators are now available to all Americans. Even those of you who might think you possibly couldn't afford it. We've got some great payment options. Check them out. The Patriot Power Generator, specifically the Patriot Power Generator for 1800, is a solar generator that doesn't use gas, so it doesn't have fumes. Therefore, no carbon monoxide. Instead of being loud, it's as quiet as a laptop. And it's so lightweight, you can pick it up and take it with you wherever you need to go. I plan on uh, taking mine camping. Uh, I think I've mentioned that already. It's quality stuff and... You really ought to have one. I never realized how much easier the smaller solar power generators were until I got my hands on this one. So, uh, you yeah, know, the good part is you can use it inside if you need to. Again, uh, I will remind you of the no fumes thing. Powerful enough to keep your phones charged up for a long uh, period of time. You can keep your medical devices going. You can even keep your refrigerator running if that's what you need at the moment. And right now, you can go over to 4patriots.com, use code TAP, that's T A P P, all caps if you would like. Get 10% off that first purchase on anything in the store, including the Patriot power generator. Just go to the number 4patriots.com, use code TAP, T A P P, to get that 10% off. One more time, that's 4patriots.com, 4patriots, for plural. The number four, P-A-T-R-I-O-T-S dot com. (laughs) Use code TAP, T-A-P-P, and get yours today. All right, I think that's enough uh, attempt to sell you something. Uh, I do highly recommend you go visit the site, though, and seriously check out what they are. Given where the economy is at right now, you might need to break into some of those emergency food supplies just to get through a, a few lean weeks here and there. Anyway, back to the show. Told you we were focusing a lot on legal questions this week for some strange reason. Again, very rarely uh, do I actually try to set up a show to have a specific theme, but it feels like, well, maybe subconsciously I must be, because I see these stories and lots of times there will be a theme, even if the show, the, the stories in the show don't... Uh, fit together in a way that you might think about it until I point out the similarities. But here we are again. We're back dealing with the law and the culture war. So where the law and the culture collides is still at the front of this. Michigan is where we're looking today. And actually, this is a story that I was hoping to to talk to uh, Ron about this past Friday. And then something came up and Ron was unavailable to join us. Uh, Thankfully, Matt hung around and we actually had a full hour and and a half conversation with Matt as it turned out. So it worked out okay. But uh, I do miss my conversations with Ron. He's always uh, good for bringing uh, one one heck of a perspective. And this being his home state, I knew he would have a lot to say about this and may still yet bring it up with him next time we get to talk. But I think it's important enough that we do need to talk about this. Now, rather than wait much longer. See, the Michigan Supreme Court did a thing. And I'm going to talk to you about that thing. Michigan's highest court is considering a rule change that would require judges to refer to attorneys and litigants by their preferred pronouns. Okay, so it's it's not bad enough that they want to push. What's what is the word here? Um, What is the word I'm looking for? They want to control your speech. They want to insist that you do not only do you not have free speech, but that you must speak only in the approved fashion, the fashion that has in fact been approved by them. Michigan Supreme Court sent out a notice on January 18th that was considering an amendment to Rule 1.109 of the Michigan Court Rules to force courts to comply with attorneys and parties' desired pronouns in speech and in writing. Now, over a dozen Michigan judges and attorneys have expressed concern for what the rule's implications would mean for free speech, and for religious liberty. I'm glad somebody spoke up. Quoting here from the proposed rule, Parties and attorneys may include any personal pronouns in the name section of the caption, and courts are required to use those personal pronouns when referring to or identifying the party or attorney, either verbally or in writing. So basically, any communication whatsoever in court, we're going to play their little pronoun game instead of being concerned about, I don't know, the actual jurid... The process? The process... ...of judication I'm listening to myself, and I sound like I don't know the words I want, but I'm actually just so tongue-tied from being infuriated. and Not a good thing for somebody who's trying to talk to you over the radio, by the way. But this is just so nuts. First and foremost hey, Michigan Supreme Court, you do get to determine a lot of the rules as far as how the courts are operating within the state. But doesn't that seem like something that's outside of your purview? Because you are actually demanding that people communicate to you and to each other, assuming that a lot of these cases are never actually going to get in front of the state Supreme Court be handled by the lower courts, adjudicated, and a lot of them will not even be appealed in the first case, but you're demanding that all these people communicate with one another in a fashion that in fact compels a form of speech as opposed to protecting everyone's rights I mean, I get that you want to protect the rights of these marginalized people, but your role is to protect everyone's rights equally, and those marginalized people do have all the same rights that non-marginalized people have, and you should make an effort to, to be absolutely clear to all parties involved that their rights do exist and that those rights will be protected and preserved and will be fairly dealt with during the adjudication process. However, however, the rights of the people that you are also communicating with and dealing with and moving back and forth and uh, whatever it is that's brought you into the judiciary's domain in the first place, their rights will also be protected, preserved, preserved will also come into the considerations during the process. Because that's how it's supposed to work. That is, in fact, the nature of you having rights. Again, the only place I keep hearing this is out of my own mouth, but it was a common phrase in the 80s even. Your rights end where my rights begin, and vice versa. You do not have the right to compel me to do jack. Period. That's it. You as another person, another sovereign citizen of this great nation of ours, you get your freedom of speech, I get my freedom of speech. You get your freedom to pursue happiness, I get my freedom to pursue happiness. Your happiness should not, cannot, legally previously would not even be considered to be bound upon my actions. Your happiness should have nothing to do with me. If I am a person that does something that helps bring joy to you, if our interactions together help you in the pursuit of your happiness, then fine, great, but if you are dependent on me when I have no no interest whatsoever in helping you to pursue your happiness, I don't want to stand in the way of you doing it, but I don't want to be part of doing it, then then you have to find some other means to pursue your happiness. You're not guaranteed that happiness, and you're certainly not going to be able to guarantee that happiness by forcing me to be unhappy and have to be part of your little whatever it may be, including this, the very dumb, I might add, pronoun game. But Tim, Tim, you're being so unfair. And, and you're, you're not being compassionate to those who feel differently. Well, where's their compassion to me? Uh, that's just like respect. Compassion can be a two-way street. And I would actually counter the argument that uh, not only are they not being compassionate to me, not being considerate towards my rights, my feelings, but I'm actually being compassionate to in a way that they're not capable of understanding. Because my compassion is part of teaching them, oh, by the way, not everyone is going to play along with the things you want. I'm helping you to be better prepared for dealing with everyone else out there. Because at least I'm generally going to be a bit nicer about it, a little more polite about it than a lot of people I know. But Tim, that's not what you're doing right now. No, well, maybe you don't think so, but I'm trying to make a point. There's a point that a lot of us, especially the folks that listen to this show on a regular basis, a point that we've known quite well for a long time. We cannot have liberty if we're living in a police state that requires compelled speech. You want to set rules for how you communicate? You can set those rules at a professional level. Professionally speaking, you need to address these people as such. Now, here's the thing. If you've got a client, a litigator, that doesn't want to be identified with the pronouns that typically are associated with their biological at-birth sex, then you can compromise professionally by simply referring to them by their proper name on a regular basis. And if that's not good enough for them... Or for you as an activist, then you're the one that's being unreasonable. Sorry. I think it's being way reasonable to simply make that accommodation and make that compromise. Hello, Jeff, whatever. Or hello, Franklin. Whatever the last name may be. Rather than say, well, you know, I was talking to him. Well, he doesn't like you to call him him. He wants you to call him her. That's her preferred pronoun. So I'm going to say her. Yeah, but you can't make me do it. And there's nothing professional, regardless of what profession you may be, by saying you must. You must refer to a him as a her just because he wants you to. It's absurd. On his face. And there was a point in time. Where even the people. Who are currently activists on their behalf. Understood that. There was a time. When even they. Them. Understood it. It's like well you know. I would. I don't feel like a he. But. That's how the rest of the world sees me. Because. It's a biological fact. Something I can't actually change it. While my friends are willing to play along with the choice that I would rather you call me this. What right do I have to compel others, especially others I don't know, to play this same game? So yes, I'm going to say, it is a form of compassion. It's that tough love we've talked about. Sometimes the only real love is the tough love. Because you're not enabling bad behavior. You're not... Uh, essentially doing your part to encourage somebody to eventually run into a buzzsaw that they're just not prepared for when it hits them square in the head. Anyway, parties and attorneys may include any personal pronouns in the name section of the caption and courts are required to use those personal pronouns when referencing or identifying the party or attorney, either verbally or in writing. Now, Michigan judges and attorneys are writing to the court and speaking out about the problematic amendment. In an eight-page response to the proposed rule, William R. Bloomfield, general counsel for the Diocese of Lansing, said that it would be a direct violation of the First Amendment, and I would have to say that William is correct. Quoting here, in brief, requiring courts, i.e. judges, to use a person's own designated personal pronouns is an unconstitutional violation of free speech and free exercise of religion. And... As vital as the interest in free speech is for ordinary citizens, or groups of citizens, it is perhaps even more important for judges to be free of any compulsory speech. Compulsory. Hmm. That's, That's another good word to use there. Michigan Religious Liberty Attorney Timothy Denny. Speaking to the Daily Wire, said that, quote, "This this proposed preferred pronoun rule would violate the compelled speech principle. The Michigan Supreme Court's proposed rule to force judges to any attorney's preferred pronoun violates the First Amendment the first amendment prohibits government from compelling public officials to make statements contrary to their beliefs forget their beliefs what about uh, contrary to basic biological fact i would think that's even more important i it comes down to holding up two fingers and asking your political prisoner how many fingers do you have held up and requiring them to say four. I'm holding up two. But if they say anything other than four, they get punished. Reality. Objective, quantifiable reality should always be a factor. Should always be considered when we're discussing this particular issue. And again, you can personally choose to play along with an individual that you know, you can decide that you're just going to be an ally in general and you're willing to play along with all of them, whether you know them or not. But you've got that choice. You get to make that choice and good for you for making it. All right. If that's the the role you want to play, I mean, fine, be an ally. But are you really being an ally? I mean, what, what are you really doing to help these people? if you're somebody that feels the need to deny the biological reality of your existence, for whatever reason, legitimate, imagined, whatever, if that's who you are, they need that much validation in it. What are you really doing? What are you accomplishing? What are you helping them with? Well, I'm helping them to feel better about themselves in the short run, maybe. But in the long run, what have you actually done? What have you accomplished? Have you actually been an ally? Have you actually helped them in anything meaningful long term? If anything, you may have actually helped to pile on to a point that when they get to that point in time where they absolutely positively should have gotten the type of help that could have prevented them from becoming part of that most horrific statistic involving transgenders, that extremely high suicide rate, you may have helped enable them to get to the point where they didn't get the help they needed sooner, so they didn't make it, they became part of that statistic. So how compassionate is that? How much of an ally is that? I I, I do believe this is something that you should make on a personal level. And if you choose to do that, fine, whatever. But how dare you think you have the right to compel me or anyone else into doing the same thing? And And I say this from a place of actually supporting some people that are in that situation. I'm not an enemy To transgendered people. I'm certainly not an enemy to someone that's legitimately suffering from gender dysphoria, which I think is the only real issue here. And then we're conflating. A lot of kids are getting hurt right now because of the social contagion of it's cool to be trans. An actual person suffering from gender dysphoria is never once going to describe this as something that's cool. I promise you that. And if you're just emulating that behavior the whole time thinking, well, here, I, this is my chance to, to be marginalized too. I get to be a victim instead of having to be that terrible, horrible, no good white person that, of course, is an oppressor. I, how do I get to be part of the oppressed? That's where a lot of this is coming from. And it's sad, and it's shameful, and like with everything else that happens as part of the culture war from the left, it does nothing to actually protect the people that need the protection. The people that they claim to be trying to help, the actual folks that have honest-to-goodness gender dysphoria are getting brushed aside and put in groups and treated like they're just faking it too. When, in fact, everybody that has any form of gender dysphoria needs some actual help. They need the help to try to get to a place where they're happy with it, even though, as I have said, it has been well documented at this point that more than 90% of the people that actually have gender dysphoria outgrow it by the end of puberty, even if they don't get any kind of outside assistance. It's only that 10% that don't make it out at the end of puberty that we really need to make sure that they're getting the help they need. And the help they need is not somebody patting them on the back and saying, uh, she, she, her, they, them, right? Right, that's, we're going to use your preferred pronoun because that's going to just help your acceptance. And, and that's going to make you so much better. We're going to play along with whatever delusion might be going on in your mind because that's the way we've always Treated mental health in this country, right? You know, play along. Have Have you ever heard a psychiatrist or a psychologist give as actual advice to any of their clients or family members of their clients, their patients, play along with their delusions on any other topic? Any other thing at all? Well, we'll just play along with it because in the long run, that'll be good for them. You know, there's no harm in it. Have you ever heard that before? Once, I'm kind of doubted. I really do. I have never heard it. Anyway, uh, Denny also pointed out to a case known as Meriwether versus uh, Hart- Hartup, a case where the Sixth Circuit ruled that a uh, public college could not force a professor to use the preferred pronouns of a trans-identifying student. The court's decisions uh, are binding in Michigan. That court's decisions are binding in Michigan. Twelve Michigan Court of Appeals judges signed a letter opposing the proposed rule change and pointing out that the potential legal problems such a rule would cause such as bad faith actors using the rule for strategic reasons unrelated to the merits of the case, the judges also questioned if the rule could result in a judgment being reversed for the petty offense of mistakenly using the wrong pronoun. The judges also mentioned other states like New York, Massachusetts, and Utah that have addressed the issue. Quote, in narrow prudent ways. Massachusetts and Utah both require parties desiring to be called by their preferred pronouns to inform the court through a notice of pronouns. The proposed rule change is another example of the Great Lakes State's highest courts catering to the demands of the LGBTQ community, even when those demands challenge the free speech and religious liberty protections that are guaranteed in the Constitution to everyone else. Last summer, the same court ruled in a 5-2 to decision that the state's civil rights protections preventing discrimination on the basis of sex also apply to sexual orientation and gender identity, targeting small businesses in the state that uh, are not already subject to federal workplace law. The Michigan Supreme Court is receiving comments on the proposed rule change up until the 1st of May. If you are in a position and would like to send comments to them, you're looking for Rule 1.109. And again, that is through the month of May. And man, oh man, is that nuts or what? all right let's go ahead and take the mid-hour break again running just a little late so i think i might have actually picked up some time uh you guys don't go anywhere i will be right back after this very very brief break uh that's probably actually going to be about as long as the last one <laughs> don't go anywhere guys i will be right back i promise or at least You know, as much as I can, promise. You're listening to Tap into the Truth.
4: Douglass, George Washington Carver, and my own dad would be furious about current approaches to race relations in America. Hello, I'm Ron Edwards. On today's page from the Edwards Notebook, Frederick Douglass became arguably the greatest orator of the 19th century, a champion for freedom, and a U.S. ambassador. George Washington Carver became a world-renowned inventor. My own dearly departed dad was a valiant military hero hard-working family man and the world's greatest dad all three men had a few positive traits in common one they did not allow their goals or actions to be dictated by those seeking to either oppress them physically or otherwise two they never saw themselves as victims they viewed obstacles whatever they were as situations things or certain people to simply overcome Reggie Douglas, George Washington Carver, and my own dad all utilized their God-given talents, brains, and honest effort to vastly improve their chances of success in this life. Despite certain problems they all faced, they never hated the United States, but rather sought to encourage America to remember that all men are created equal with certain unalienable rights which come from God. I'm Ron Edwards. Check out the RodEdwards.com. How do you register for wedding
6: gifts when all you really want is a fantastic honeymoon? Don't get us wrong, traditional wedding registries that feature a collection of gift items like towels and appliances are definitely helpful as you furnish your home with your new spouse, but they don't help you pay for your dream honeymoon. HoneyFund is here to help you reach those goals with a cash registry. Understandably, some couples may feel unsure about asking for cash instead of traditional wedding registry items. The reality is wedding guests love Honey Fund, and they always tell us how they wished they had one when they got married. Rest assured, friends and family will happily contribute to your honeymoon. In fact, couples who start with Honey Fund receive two and a half times more honeymoon funds than couples who start with a store registry. Even if your store registry allows you to add honeymoon gifting, friends and family will be more likely to pick the physical gift items. But on Honeyfund, you can feature what you really want first, your honeymoon. Add activities you plan to do, where you would like to eat, and how you plan to get there so your friends and family know exactly what their contributions will be going towards. You can add a gorgeous photo of your dream destination, and write about why it is the perfect place to celebrate your new marriage. It will be so exciting for your friends and family to see the story of your honeymoon through the items in your registry. Still need a few household items? You can have traditional wedding gifts on your HoneyFun page by linking partner registries. Adding additional registries this way, instead of adding the individual items to your HoneyFun page, will help emphasize your honeymoon experiences over other gifts, so you have the best chance to have your once in a lifetime honeymoon. Reach your wedding and honeymoon goals Create your Honey Fund Registry today.
5: Second Skull is a protective headgear company with a patented line of impact-reducing products. At Second Skull, we focus on head protection as our only priority so that we can be the absolute best at it. With an estimated 2.8 million Americans sustaining a traumatic brain injury each year and a half a million children being treated in the ER each year for a head injury, there have been recent declines in athletic participation levels. We believe that concerns and fears of head injuries are factors contributing to these declines in activity levels. Second Skull has protection for every sport and for every athlete. Our product line of thin, lightweight, breathable, and practical solutions are each tested at independent and accredited laboratories. These products are patented and proven.
4: Remember, Constitutional Grounds, the coffee you want in your cup.
3: You're listening to Tap into the Truth. Hey, Joe. They say building back better
2: make America great. If that's a wave of the future, all I've got Say Stick your progress where the sun don't shine. Keep your big mess Wait for me and mine. If you leave us alone, well, we'd all be just fine.
3: All right. I, I tend to think that that's probably very much true. Uh, we would be all right if they would just leave us alone. All right. Uh, Last story of the day uh, for today, anyway. Definitely wanted to spend a little time talking about this. You see, Stanford University's law school, uh, they're deemed to be the second best law school in the country, at least according to the latest U.S. News and World Report. That means, you could reasonably uh, presume, that its current enrollees likely include future senators, judges, and possibly even Supreme Court justices, who, in fact, will help shape American law over the next half century. And that probably should scare the bejesus out of you. (laughs) You see, a highly accomplished federal appeals judge was invited to the Palto Alto campus to speak to conservative students this past Thursday, only to be heckled and abused by spoiled and intolerant brats as school administrators, all but cheered those brats on. Students shouted out things like scumbag and liar whenever Fifth Circuit Judge Kyle Duncan tried to speak. These childish outbursts earned the approval of the people who run the school. When Duncan sought help restoring order, so he could address the Federalist Society students, uh, the people who actually wanted to hear what he had to say, the folks that had invited him onto campus, an administrator with the very dubious title of Associate Dean of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, Lectured the judge in a rambling five minute rant, which there is video available of if you are interested in seeing. And personally, if I was her, I would be embarrassed to have said some of the things that she did. But the thing is, when you're so concerned about diversity, equity, and inclusion, as she clearly is, there is a large detachment from reality. So I'm sure she's proud of her actions, although she's going to end up being humbled by them as well, I think, but we'll get to that point a little later. Part of what she said, uh, quoting now, we believe that the way to address speech that feels abhorrent, that feels harmful, that literally denies the humanity of people, that one way to do that is With more speech and not less. Hey, you know what? That sounds a lot like conservatives' arguments uh, against being censored and ratioed and shadow banned on social media. Uh, Do you think there's a possibility that maybe that argument makes sense to somebody who probably claims to be a liberal, but doesn't understand the fact that if you're actually a liberal, you do believe those things? That... You're the people that go around saying, I don't agree with what you're saying, but I would defend to the death your right to say it. That was a liberal rallied cry. If you believe in censorship, you're not a liberal. But here she's trying to act as if more speech, not less, but she's using it to say that the students are perfectly OK to yell at you, that they're actually trying to silence this guy, but they're claiming that that's just them providing more speech, not them stopping your speech. You see what she's doing there? She's trying to use our well-reasoned logical effort to avoid censorship, and she's trying to use it against conservatives. Except it doesn't really work, because she's using it to defend heckling and shouting down, and, uh, you know, a form of censorship. Just saying. Anyway, in her idea, the more speech is yelling and screaming, right? She clasped her hands together, beseechingly, continuing, saying, and not to shut you down, or censor you, or censor the student group that invited you here. That is hard. That is uncomfortable. And that is a policy and principle that I think is worthy of defending, I think, even in this time. Okay, now, obviously, if you watch the video and hear her saying this, she means this time as a time that we're so divided A time where the orange man who was bad got to be president for four years. A time where there are Americans that are now claiming that we would like to have our rights, too. We would like you to defend everyone equally, not equitably, because, you know, equality being different than equality. No, no, no. See, that's dangerous. But you see, I would be forced to ask her immediately, you mean in a time like this where you are legitimately standing there, having taken over the podium from the invited speaker so that you could diversify, equify, and inclusify uh, everything going on there, uh, Chief? Come on. Even in this time... You literally are committing the crime of sanctioning and silencing and then about to encourage a walkout, trying to get as many of the students that were there to leave. And I have a really, really sinking suspicion after having watched this video that almost everybody that walked out in protest weren't people that ever really should have been there in the first place. We're here to cause disruption. The Federalist Society students invited this guy to come speak to them, and they left it open. There's an open invitation for anybody who wants to hear it. Then only people who want to hear it should have showed up. You had the ability, no matter how unsafe you felt in hearing it, to not have to hear it. The same thing, somebody's saying something on TV you don't want to hear, change the channel. Somebody's playing a song on the radio you don't like change the station. Somebody's saying something you don't want to hear. Don't listen. You have that right if it's something that's so terrible and so offensive. But if they're saying these things, but you still want to hear what they have to say, then listen. Listen to what they're saying and then have a well thought out, well reasoned response after the fact. That, that is how society used to work. That is still how reasonable, intelligent people deal with the problems. Oh, but that's not what we encourage. Our diversity, equity, and inclusion chief uh, said the phrase many times, quote, "'Is the juice worth the squeeze?' Several times in a failed bid to add a sense of profound thought to her passive-aggressive plea. Is a graduate of California Berkeley School of Law, who spent part of her professional career working for the San Francisco area ACLU before landing in academia, Amid the, D-I, the DEI craze, is, is that something that they should be saying? Do, does that actually sound like a phrase that sounds profound to you? Is the juice worth the squeeze? Well, I guess it depends on what kind of juice we're talking about there, honey. You're talking about orange juice, then absolutely. Uh, it only takes a little squeeze to get a lot of juice. If you're talking about pomegranate juice, well, then that might be a little different. A lot more effort goes into it. What kind of juice are we talking See, there's no profound message there. You're just being a big crybaby because you wanted all of the students at the school that needs to be diversified, that needs some equity, that needs to be included to see you as their hero, not as one of the administrators of the school. Part of your job as an administrator of the school is to maintain reason, logic, and order on the college campus. Those are things that are almost dirty words. I would probably be more welcome to drop F-bombs in a conversation with this lady over and over again than to say logic, reason, and critical thought. Those are They're trying to change them into acronyms so they can call them four-letter words, too, these days. We know that's how that operates. But she also continued, quoting again, And again I ask, is the juice worth the squeeze? Is it worth the pain that this causes and the division it causes? Do you have something so incredibly important to say about Twitter, and guns, and COVID, that it's worth this impact and the division of these people who've sat next to each other for years. Again, this wasn't a standard classroom event. This was a special event for the Federalist Society, folks. Uh, Excuse me. I would say yes, absolutely, it is 100%, most certainly, worth having a federal appeals judge speak to young future lawyers, and simple civility requires that such a guest be treated with respect. Aspiring attorneys who disagree with Duncan should have challenged him with probing questions about his opinions, not vulgar shrieks of impudence. A generation ago, every law student, faculty member, and administrator knew this. It wasn't a question. This wouldn't have been tolerated. No administrator on the campus would have dreamed of doing this, let alone be allowed to get away with it. When Duncan finally got to speak, many of the Protesters walked out indignantly rather than engage meaningfully or subject their own views to challenge from a proven legal mind. Yes, if they couldn't silence him, they sure weren't going to listen to him. No, no, you see that that's the danger. <laughs> The danger there is those young minds have already been made up. There's no new information that could change. There's no exposure to another way of thinking that could possibly change their worldview or their legal philosophies. No, not at all. Um... Remind me again what college is supposed to be for. I mean, I get it from the employer standpoint. It's basically just you proving to the world that you can show up on time and complete a task or a series of tasks. Uh, I get that. But from the student's point of view, what is college? For? Exposing yourself to new ideas, new ways of thinking, new philosophies. Uh, Becoming immersed in cultures that may be different than your own, learning to see the values, and then hopefully applying the good parts of everything you're exposed to, into making you a more complete person, right? Or is that just my fictionalized, romanticized version of what college is supposed to be? I know at some point in the past, that was the purpose that it served for most people. Maybe that's changed too. Since none of that's actually allowed anymore, I guess I'm being facetious when I say maybe it's changed. Duncan, who just so happens to have been a 2018 Trump appointee, who has previously argued multiple cases before the U.S. Supreme Court, is reviled by leftists in part for the 2020 opinion in which he refused to use a preferred pronoun of a man named Norman Varner, who changed his name to Catherine Nicole Jett, after he pleaded guilty to possessing child pornography. Uh, That's right. Duncan offended a child sex offender, and in doing so, forfeited his right to be heard at Stanford Law. Absolutely possible. We can't have such a bigoted man speaking to future lawyers, future senators, future judges. No. How dare he not use the preferred pronoun of a child sex offender? No. Well, of course not. Because, you know, pedophilia is just another... Just another sexual preference now, right? Uh, according to the left. Now, even though Stanford's diversity, equity, and inclusion chief officer was the only one who spoke, three other Stanford law administrators were present, their silence providing uh, very obvious approval to the protesters as well. Associate Director of Student Affairs, Jory Steele, Associate Director of Student Affairs, Holly Parrish, and Student Affairs Coordinator, Megan Brown, all sat on their hands during the shameful spectacle, at least according to one member of Stanford's Federalist Society chapter. But it's also documented in the video that's out. It's over on VidMod, where I saw. Now, Duncan who was ultimately escorted away from the event by federal marshals, told the Washington Free Beacon that the protesters should be disciplined and that the DEI executive, whose lecture he described as a bizarre therapy session from hell, should be fired. Now, do I believe she should be fired? Yes, actually, absolutely, I believe she should be fired. Watch the video, understand what her role on the college campus is supposed to be and what she actually did, and how she not only virtue-signaled to an endless amount of crap, but had no real merit and value in anything that she said, therefore fails the university in every possible professional function. She has no place. She's not capable of doing the job. She embarrassed the university. So, yes, I absolutely believe she should be fired, but not because she believes in diversity, equity, and inclusion, but because she fails as an administrator of the university, which is still, regardless of what department she's overseen, still her primary job. Sorry, Judge, though. You see, even though you think. She should be fired and the children should be disciplined. You don't have jurisdiction in America's elite law schools. No, no, I'm afraid not. You see, they've rejected freedom of speech, academic rigor, and basic decorum with all of the finality and certainty of an Antonin Scalia opinion. There was a brief window a few years ago in which these institutions could have stood up to the howling children, they admit. But instead of embracing the First Amendment nearly 250 years of American jurisprudence by teaching that listening to and understanding differing opinions is critical to making persuasive arguments, they cowered and they were consumed. And after... These schools caved to a new generation of mindless maniacs. They turned the reins completely over to academic and legal lightweights like this diversity, equity, and inclusion administrator. At this point, there was no saving them. They are too far gone. The nation's top law schools are now dominated by intolerant, radical, leftist banshees who believe all those who hold differing worldviews are evil and thus deserve, deserving of incoherent contempt. Their administrations and faculties used to be too terrified to stand up to the mob. Now, they agree with the mob. They are part of the mob. Stanford Law accepts just over 6% of applicants, and those who make it have high undergraduate grades and LSAT scores, in the top 1 or 2%, actually. But even that's not enough. The school's application also asks students how their culture, socioeconomic status, sex, race, ethnicity, religion, sexual orientation, gender identity, or expression or other factors will contribute to the diversity of the entering class. Meaning that there is an incentive to fall into one of these categories whether you actually do or not. So you know coming in, especially if you don't fall into one of these categories that's generally perceived to be more favored for applicant purposes, if you don't fall into that, you don't dare challenge any of this because you're not really wanted in the first place. These anti-intellectual loons didn't sneak into Stanford, unlike their conservative peers who got in on pure merit, they, the the anti-intellectual loons, they were recruited. They were looked for. They were sought after. They were brought there to become a majority because these poor, poor people have been marginalized for so long. The conservative students rightly have Judge Duncan's respect and the sympathy, and they deserve yours too, quite honestly. Duncan, again speaking to the Free Beacon, said, quote, don't feel sorry for me. I am a life-tenured federal judge. What outrages me is that these kids are being treated like dog expletive by fellow students and ...administrators. Uh, (laughs) Excuse me. That's only slightly a real cough. I was going to do a fake cough to clear my throat, but a real one snuck up. Stanford's president and the law school dean have officially apologized to Judge Duncan, by the way. They wrote a letter, a joint letter of apology to doctor oh not doctor, but Judge Kyle Duncan, for the violations of university policies on speech that disrupt his talk. In the letter, they said, quoting again, we write to apologize for the disruption of your recent speech at Stanford Law School. As has already been communicated to our community, what happened was inconsistent with our policies on free speech, and we are very sorry about the experience you had while visiting our campus. Now again, this was a very clear, obvious reference to the DEID, Ms. Stenbach, and her bizarre scolding of Duncan. The letter observes that staff members who should have enforced university policies failed to do so, and instead intervened in inappropriate ways that are not aligned with the university's commitment to free speech. This leads me to believe that some discipline may be in the future... For the DEI dean. In a response from Judge Duncan on National Review, he said, quote, I appreciate receiving Stanford presidents' and Stanford's law deans' written apology for the disruption of my speech at the law school. I'm pleased to accept their apology. I particularly appreciate the apology's important acknowledgements that staff members who should have enforced university policies failed to do so, and instead intervened in inappropriate ways that are not aligned with the university's commitment to free speech. Particularly given the depth of the invective directed towards me by the protesters. The administrator's behavior was completely at odds with the law school's mission of training future members of the bench and bar. I hope a similar apology is tendered to the persons in the Stanford Law School community most harmed by the mob actions, the members of the Federalist Society, who graciously invited me to campus. Such an apology would also be a useful step towards restoring the law school's broader commitment to the many, many students at Stanford who, while not members of the Federalist Society, nonetheless welcome robust debate on campus. Finally, the apology promises to take steps to make sure this kind of disruption does not occur again, given the disturbing nature of what happened. Clearly, concrete and comprehensive steps Are necessary. I look forward to learning what measures Stanford plans to take to restore a culture of intellectual freedom. So I'm left here having to agree with the judge because the letter the letter itself is kind of tepid. Which I suppose you would expect from a university president that. Wants to be firm, but also doesn't want to alienate uh, either side as far as the students were concerned. Same thing from the the full dean of the law school, because well-thought-out legal arguments, something that an admission that might lead to some legal stuff down the road, that uh, you don't want to do that either. So you, you're in a place where tepid assertions might have been the best step to take. I I would myself like to have heard, much like the judge mentioned, uh, a little more knowledge of exactly what steps they plan on taking. Uh, Personally, I think Stanford, just like every other university across the country, like a few have actually started, they just need to go ahead and remove that position from the universities to begin with. There does not need to be a diversity, equity, and inclusion dean on any college campus anywhere in the country. It's, It's completely redundant and unnecessary, and any arguments to the contrary ignores the reality that takes place on college campuses. I do hope that this will, in fact, begin a movement for universities across the country to begin taking back control of their campuses away from the squeaky wheels that do not have the university's best interest at heart, that do not have their fellow students' best interest at heart, that in fact are designed specifically to try and bully their way into a degree without after, without actually having to earn it. And if you think that's not a motivating factor for some of these people, then again, you're just not paying attention. All right, what do you say we call it in there? We're we're nearly two and a quarter hours in when this is supposed to be only about a two-hour show. One more quick reminder, since I have run long enough into a third hour to mention it, one bonus freebie, uh, please go ahead and visit 4patriots.com. See what you have uh, going on over there that could come in handy. That's the number 4patriots.com. Uh, use code TAP, T A P P, to get 10% off of your first uh, order there, regardless of what you're getting, including the Patriot power generator, uh, which, you know, storm season. It's already started for some folks, but it's right around the corner for the rest of us. Well worth taking a visit. In the meanwhile, don't take my word for it. Definitely, definitely don't take their word for it. Be prepared to put in some effort and especially some effort at using critical thinking if you really want to tap into the truth. That's it for now. Stay safe out there and be smart. And, uh, oh, yeah, uh, one last message for that guy currently residing at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. This is Tim Tap.
5: evil is powerless if the good are unafraid.